We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Today's read, Midnight, a gangster love story by Sister Soja, chapter 37, The Ferris Wheel. Cho hit me with my cash on Saturday. His door was mad busy from early morning, so he was caked up. We worked his spot like we'd been together for years, served each customer swiftly, and moved them right out. At 3 p.m. when my shift ended, a next wave of customers showed up. I stayed and grinded with him until it all lightened up and cleared out. He counted out $180 and put it in my hand. It was the most I ever drew in one day of work at the fish spot. It amounted to $20 an hour on a 7 to 3 shift, plus one hour overtime. Akimi showed up. I saw her through the window. Joe saw her too. Japanese girl looking for you, he said, and flashed a rare, funny smile, closed lip, and revealing none of his teeth. The corners of his mouth pushed up. I ran down to the basement, showered and changed. I had to be fresh all over. When I came around the corner, she was on the side of the building like when I first met her. She switched her style up again today. She had her hair zigzag parted like a ghetto girl and pulled tight. The long ends were braided and wrapped around in two wicked braided buns that sat on both sides of her head like ram's horns. No gloss or lipstick, just a splash of glitter that made her eyes sparkle more. Soon as she saw me, her pretty natural lips parted and her smile spread wide. She stopped leaning on the wall and stood waiting. I wanted to take her to the store and buy her some pants to wear underneath the white linen dress she was rocking, but I took her to the jeweler and bought her some diamond studs instead. No gift wrap, I told him. Just clean them up with a machine and get me some alcohol wipes. I took her earrings out, cleaned her earlobes with the wipes, put some alcohol on the stems and poked them through her two holes which had healed nicely. When I looked at her, it was perfect. Diamonds rock with linen and expensive clothes like the ones she wore needed to be complemented with authentic jewels. They looked clean. She looked clean. It set me back money-wise. I had to dip into the money in my left pant leg that I usually keep just in case. But I was learning that when you are really in love with a female, you don't give a fuck about spending your money on her. Fingers, not chopsticks. That's what we used at the Ethiopian restaurant where I took her for dinner. Now she was addicted to flavor. So she was real excited by the dishes of spicy foods. She dipped two fingers into a tiny sauce bowl and sucked them. 
her pretty eyes filled up with water from the heat of the peppers. I could tell she loved the scenery, the pictures, and cloths in this African restaurant. Her eyes shifted slowly from wall to wall and carving to carving. Everybody's body swayed some to the voice of Bob Marley, seducing his girl to turn your lights down low. On the warm streets of New York, her legs looked pretty in wedged espadrille heels with a thick pale pink ribbon that crisscrossed around her ankles and up until just below her knees, like a ballerina in pink toe shoes. We walked in and out of some of the Manhattan shops, her curiosity constant, me waiting on the sun to ease down. Amusement parks always looked better in the night. On the train, I sat her on the inside. We rode hand in hand to Coney Island, home of the greatest ghetto amusement park. I passed on the idea of dropping two or three hundred at Great Adventure in New Jersey. Besides, in Coney Island, there were no searches or metal detectors. She didn't mind. When she saw the rides, the lights, and the swarms of people, her eyes lit up. She was having a blast and wanted a little taste of everything. She wanted some cotton candy to try. I bought it. She took two bites and that was it. She ate a tiny piece of funnel cake, but mostly slid her finger in the confectioner's sugar and sucked it. I bought two medium-sized colorful lollipops. She left them in the wrapper, stuck one on each side of her braided buns and rocked them, just like that. Most of all, she wanted to ride the Ferris wheel. We got online. The metal cages swang down one by one with couples jumping in and threesomes stuffing themselves in and being ordered out. I helped Akimi inside, then climbed in myself. The joint rocked back and forth. Pull a safety bar, the attendant reminded us. He left then to hit the switches. The wheel jerked and took off. While the wheels spun around, we looked at the people way down below and the colorful lights that lit up the area. We could even see the dark waters of far Rockaway Beach. I thought about how this was the first time in a long time that she and I had been alone. Now we were hanging in the air, swinging back and forth, trapped in a cage. She put her hand on the back of my neck. We started kissing between the rocking and the light wind blowing onto our faces and her breathing and the spinning and the feeling of dropping when the ride swung down. The sensation was crazy. The metal bar held our bodies back in one crazy, uncomfortable position, but I could feel her tongue and her lips and I was sucking her soft, smooth and pretty neck. When I touched her bare leg, she moaned. It was a kind of whining like a cat. She leaned her head back like the feeling was too much. Then suddenly, the ride jerked, then stopped. We just sat there. Come on out. It's over. 
the ride operator said. We were back on the ground. We walked a little. The music from the DJ booth of the Himalaya ride was blasting. It was loud, crowded, and fun. Next, we hopped on the line for the El Dorado bumper cars. It was a mad rush, like everybody had the same idea at the same time and wanted to get on the same ride. But as we stood there, I could see that every ride was packed with people trying to get on. It was a slow moving maze. Some people was pushing, some people were cutting the line. The people on the line closed in tighter, trying to stop the cutters. It was a Brooklyn crowd. Akimi was pressed against my back. When the heat from her body disappeared, I turned to her. Akimi gasped and I figured someone had stepped on her foot. Then I saw that a female had her hand around one of Akimi's braided buns and was pulling her backwards by the hair. She was falling. Just as I grabbed her away from the girl, another girl's fist came crashing down on Akimi's face. Akimi dropped to the pavement. You picked this Chinese bitch over me? You must be fucking crazy, the enraged girl screamed. Her face was all contorted like an evil comic book monster. I took one real good look at her. It was homegirl, backed up by a group of her female friends, including Redbone. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hurt and shocked, Akimi held both of her hands over one eye. I picked her up from the ground and put both my arms around her. I froze. If it was a male attacker, I would have killed him. A group of boys, I would have fought them all. But it was a group of girls led by one crazy broad. On instinct, I pushed homegirl out of the way so I could get Akimi out of the overpopulated, fenced-in line. Homegirl fell backwards, but up against the bodies of her friends who caught her. They all started screaming, and three of them threw their drinks onto Akimi's dress. That's what you get, bitch, homegirl yelled. Fry me some chicken wings, bitch, Redbone screamed. Paint my toenails, bitch, the other one barked. And Brooklyn don't wear white before Memorial Day, bitch. I held three of the girls back, but one of them snatched the lollipops out of Akimi's hair and started beating her with them. A group of girls started leaping over the rail. They Brooklyn mobbed her. Akimi ducked down by the bottom of my leg where they couldn't reach her. 
I kicked one of them with my one free leg. I pushed the rest of them down one by one. The crowd started spreading and splitting until we was out of there. Everybody watched the whole thing happen. They talked. Some cheered. Others laughed or screamed. Some fools even tried to block our exit to keep the fight going strong. There were no cops around. That was a good thing. The Coney Island ride attendants were caught up watching the brawl, so the bumper cars were at a complete standstill. I grabbed a pile of napkins from Nathan's. I was wiping the soda off of Akimi, but it was sticky on her skin. Her hair was unraveled and fucked up from all the pulling, and now her right eye was swelling. At a small clothing booth, I paid $10 for a blue extra-large I Love Coney Island t-shirt and pulled it over Akimi's stained wet dress. We hopped in a cab. Jackson Height, Queens, I told the driver. Are you okay? I asked her, not knowing what else to say. I felt like shit. I had failed to protect her. Hi, she said softly, but I could see her eye was already blackening. I didn't know what the fuck to do. Her dress was soaked in coke, which looked like diarrhea on her expensive linen cloth. Her eye was black. I could also see how I had left a big purple passion mark on her neck. It looked like I had fucked her up, abused her, beat her with my fists. I had to either take her to the hospital or take her to her uncle's house. Either way, I was fucked. Trained not to panic, I took deep breaths. Calmly, I told the driver, turn around. Then I gave him my Brooklyn address. For that address, pay up front. $20 plus whatever the meter says when we get there, he said. I put my $20 bill in the metal cup attached to his shield that separated the drivers from the passengers. He grabbed the money, made the turn, and sped off. As we pulled up on my block, I saw conflict sitting in his parked car, heavenly at his side. They were both stretching their necks like giraffes to see what I was doing. I held Akimi close and tight on an angle away from the two of them. I walked her past and up the walkway into the building. As I unlocked and entered the door to our apartment, I was already explaining myself to Uma. Naja was excited to see Akimi, but instantly her face went from joy to complete shock. In rapid Arabic, I recounted the events for my mother. Akimi stood with her head down. Uma stepped in and put her hand below Akimi's chin and pulled her face up. Uma's eyes brought tears to Akimi's eyes. Once she saw Uma's expression, she knew exactly how bad it was. Uma took Akimi into her room. Naja followed them. I went for the telephone. It was still early, 10, 10 p.m. I was hoping to speak to Akimi's cousin to control the damage on the other side. I could easily see this thing blowing up into an all-out war and complete mess and disaster. Luckily, the cousin picked up. 
I started putting my quick plan in place. I need your help. Don't say my name, please, is what I asked her. The cousin was quiet on the phone for a few seconds. Are you in a room alone or with others? I asked her. I'm alone now. Why? She asked. Listen, Akimi is all right. She is with me. We went to a park and she got jumped by some girls. Oh, no. Why? She asked. I don't know. Jealousy, robbery, something, I said. Where were you? How could you let this happen to her? I was with her, but there were a lot of people there in a crowd and we got separated. I'm sorry, but she is at my house now and I am taking care of her, I said. She has to go home, her cousin said, raising her voice. I know, but she can't leave just now. Her dress is ruined and my mother is helping her. I just need you to do us a big favor. Please call your uncle and tell him that Akimi is spending the night with you, I asked her. I can't do that. If this is some kind of joke, or if you two are trying to spend the night together, don't include me. Akimi will get into so much trouble. Put her on the phone, please. The cousin was tensed. Listen first. I'll put her on. I called you because you know me, and you know I love Akimi. And you know and love Akimi. This ain't no joke. We need you to do this. It's not a trick or a game or nothing. It's more of an emergency. Please put her on the phone, the cousin insisted. I knocked on Uma's door and asked her to hand Akimi the telephone. As I listened to Akimi speaking fluently in Japanese, I couldn't tell either way. She spoke so softly. As I watched her, I could not detect anger or fear or anything in her tone of voice. I returned to the living room and picked up the phone to listen in. There were three voices now, all speaking Japanese. Akimi's, the cousins, and the uncles. I pictured myself in my imagination, standing at the door of the uncle's house holding Akimi's hand. When the uncle opens the door and sees the bruises, he draws his sword, the real deal, like Sensei's, and chops off my fucking head. I don't move. I let him. I deserve it. If it were my sister standing there at my house with some guy who failed to protect her, I would do the same. Then I heard the click. I put the phone down, worried. Then the phone rang again and I picked it up. It was the cousin again. Midnight? I put uncle on the three-way. He believes that Akimi and I are here at my house together. It's fine, as long as he doesn't happen to speak to my parents before tomorrow. If this thing backfires, I am so dead. I did this for Akimi's sake, but she promised me she wouldn't. Her voice trailed off. I won't, I promised. My mother and sister are here too. I have some respect, you know. I reminded her. Bring her to her uncle's house in Queens in the morning at 11 a.m. No one will be home because they will all be in Chinatown at the store by that time. I'll leave my house early and meet you two there. I'll take care of the rest. Now she sounded confident. Thank you. Don't worry. Call back if you have to, I told her. Uma had Akimi lying down on her bed. She had prepared a solution in a silver dish 
and was dabbing it onto Akimi's eye. Then she placed the ice bag she prepared over her eye. Naja watched intently. Akimi seemed relaxed and somehow to enjoy the attention and affection. I understood. Uma had that effect. As I stood in the doorway looking in, Uma said to me in Arabic, she'll be okay in time. I took it as a cue for me to leave. I went to my room. An hour later, I looked out my door. Naja was washing Akimi's hair in the kitchen sink. She had her bottles of Uma's female potions, rose water and lavender and tangerine. She seemed to be thinking of Akimi as one of her dolls. I could tell by her expression that she was having the time of her life. Uma was smooth at working her magic. Now, the white linen dress was soaking in the bathtub in some type of cleaning solution. I didn't think anything could remove those dark brown stains. Meanwhile, Uma was speed sewing. I've seen her do it before during some important rush job. Akimi ended up sitting on a huge pillow on the floor, freshly showered and wearing one of Uma's beautiful robes. Her hair was still moist. She had her arms wrapped around her legs, her long hair covering the blackened eye, the other eye peeking out. She still looked beautiful to me. Some scars and bruises are erotic if you could just look at them and block out how they got there. Plus, she had 10 perfectly shaped, unblemished, creamy toes. I walked near her and went into my jeans pocket. I sat down and placed the small diamond ring onto one of her pretty toes. I raised up. Uma looked up from her work, caught me staring at Akimi and smiled. She said, this is how you got into this trouble in the first place. I thought to myself, she's right. Luckily for me, her and Naja are home, or there would be some more trouble to get into. Akimi walked straight back to my room. My door was left wide open. I stood in the doorway so Uma could see I was not doing anything she would not approve of. Akimi looked around. She put her hand on my bed and ran it across the length of it. She bent over and smelled my sheets. She stopped and checked out my book collection. She pulled open my drawers and flipped through my t-shirts. She took one out and smelled, then caressed it and said, Akimi's. She saw my ninjutsu gear folded on my desk. She assumed a fighting stance and smiled. I felt like a fraud and was embarrassed after what happened tonight. She picked up one of my dojo flyers, looked it over and put it down. Then she picked it back up and said, Akimi's. Soon, she was sitting on my floor rummaging through my closet. I waved at her to come out of there. She pulled out one of my sneaker boxes instead and opened it. Her face switched when she saw one of my guns lying on top of the tissue paper inside the box. She held the box in one hand, staring down at it, and then she stared at me. I stared back at her. She put the box back. She opened the leather fold that held my custom-made kunai knives. I shook my head no to signal her to put them down. She pulled one out, examined the art and design of the kunai handle. 
She kissed the blade of the knife, probably admired the special craftsmanship. She slid it back into the individual slot and closed the leather fold. When she looked at me, I could not see or feel any worry inside of her. Strangely, all I could see and feel coming from her was a deeper love. She breezed by me, smelling like sweetness, holding one of my t-shirts, my dojo flyer, and a couple of other things in her hands. She put her items down on the table in the living room, then joined Naja on the floor, helping her to put together one of her 500-piece puzzles. They both fell asleep on the pillow. Uma did not sleep. She sewed and guarded. When she was finished sewing, she moved Akimi into her room and Naja into hers. She slept in the living room, separating me from my temptation. In the early morning, Uma and I made prayer together. I asked Allah for forgiveness for what I allowed to happen to Akimi. I wondered if my kissing and sucking on her before the two of us were properly bound in marriage contributed to this situation going all wrong. I thought about it. Then my mind let go of it. There was no way for me to rearrange what was already done. The smell of Uma's breakfast cooking aroused Akimi. She looked out of Uma's bedroom door with her bright smile like a sneaky cat. Her right eye seemed even worse. It was half black, half green with a blob of blood floating in the white of her eye. I felt bad. I didn't know what the day would bring. Uma said, that's the way it heals. It gets worse before it gets better. Soon, it will be gone altogether. We enjoyed breakfast, the four of us. Akimi's fingertips were covered with spices, pickled peppers and onions. She enjoyed the fish and yogurt and ate cheese and hot bread. When I told her we should be leaving, she was sucking on a slice of green mango. She wasn't moving. She seemed like she wanted to stay. Uma had Akimi looking fine in a newly made wine-colored chiffon mini dress, the stylish kind she observed that Akimi liked to wear. It was a soft, elegant material that Uma had kept for a long time to use for herself. She cut and stitched it perfectly for Akimi's petite yet shapely body. The compromise was the matching pants, which were precisely tailored and went nice with the wedged heels and the pale pink ribbons that Akimi wore out yesterday. Uma threw her heart into that beautiful outfit, even though it was too dressy for this casual day. From knowing my mother, I knew she saw it as a small means of apologizing on behalf of her son and his family. She embraced Akimi and Naja did too. She handed Akimi one of her shopping bags, which Akimi immediately stuffed with more items she collected from our place. As we left out, Uma surprisingly pulled her pair of black Gucci sunglasses out of her silk robe pocket. These were her nice ones, which she wore long ago when we were in Egypt. She placed them over Akimi's eyes, kissed her cheek, and we left. We rode down the elevator with the drizzle of Project Churchgoers. It was early enough in the morning that last night's partygoers were still all locked inside of their apartments. 
we taxied to her house in Queens. She does not look hurt. Her cousin stood up from the curb where she was waiting for us to arrive. They spoke some. Then Akimi removed her glasses. The cousin gasped, then covered her mouth with one hand. She looked at me suspiciously. However, the peaceful and happy look on Akimi's face contradicted whatever her cousin was thinking. Akimi walked on by and used her key to open the front door. I turned to leave. Akimi said, please, and waved me in. The cousin looked nervous. Akimi said something brief to her. She says she has something to give you, the cousin said. We all stepped out of our shoes, which we left in the foyer and into the darkened living room area. Inside, they used the telephone and called their uncle. They both spoke to him. We got away with it, her cousin said to me after hanging up the phone. Next, the cousin called her house to say good morning to her parents who were sleeping late on their day off. Yes, Akimi and I are at uncle's house now. Akimi wanted to complete some artwork. We'll be here, but don't call back. You know we won't be able to hear the telephone in Akimi's studio. Talk to you later. She took a deep breath. See what you two have turned me into? She asked me. I was grateful to the cousin, but I didn't trust her. She was working too many angles all at once. My mind raced ahead. I kept getting the feeling that this might be the last day I would see Akimi because of everything that went down. I did not know what to do to change things for the better. I was already standing in another man's house without his knowledge or permission. I knew I was wrong, yet I was still doing it. Please, Akimi said. I followed her. She opened a closed door and descended down the metal staircase. I looked back at the cousin. I went down. The cousin was still standing at the top of the stairs. Fourteen steps down and we became part of a separate world. I stood in a large room with a wall of water. There were three ordinary walls, but the fourth was made of glass. Behind the wall was hundreds of gallons of water, home to two astounding blue octopuses. On the bottom were purple, blue, and orange rocks on which sat some beautiful seashells of every color shading and blending along with some coral. Against the glass, there were starfish of all shapes and sizes and colors. I imagined it was like standing on the floor of the ocean, but being able to breathe normally. It was a beautiful sight, and the collage of colors cast from the lighting of the life-size tank was calming. Across from the wall of water was a unique circular kitchen table. It had a metal frame with chunks of colored glass as the tabletop. It looked like an unfinished stained glass project. There was a small rectangular orange tinted window that let in a slight ray of colored light from outdoors. 
She had three new mismatched small size sneakers sitting on her windowsill. On a closer look, I realized she was using them as flower pots. She had soil where the heel would usually rest and was growing peppermint leaves inside of them. She was still wearing her sunglasses, but moved around in the colored dark with familiarity. She pulled a small chain and a Tiffany lamp lit up the kitchen area. Go, she said, inviting me to sit down. In the chair, I stretched out my legs, admiring the bleached wood floors. The craftsman had done a perfect job of laying it down and bringing out the natural grain of the wood with just a light coat of shellac. My grandfather did amazing woodwork too, I remembered. She broke off a peppermint stalk, sprinkled it with some water, and placed two leaves in each of three ceramic teacups. She poured bottled water into a small black cast iron tea kettle. She turned the fire on and placed the kettle on top. She gestured to say, one minute, then disappeared through another door. Her cousin, now sitting at the top of the stairs, reminded me that she was still there. Akimi's father had this basement designed for her months before she arrived in the United States. Everything you see is what she wanted, the cousin stated. I looked around the wide and long open space. There were no walls to separate the kitchen from the living room or bedroom area. In fact, I did not see a bed at all. Instead, I saw a swing. An indoor swing? I had to get up and check it out. The swing seat was made of the same metal as her table frame and staircase. It was sturdy and wide enough to sit, stand, or lay down on. The chains that held it up were heavy metal links. The whole thing was bolted into the cement ceiling. I yanked the chains a bit to see how strong they really were. I guess since I moved out of my chair, her cousin came walking downstairs. She creates on that thing, her cousin said. She sits there with her eyes closed and swings back and forth sometimes for a long time. That's where she comes up with all those crazy ideas for her artwork and everything else. Then she goes over to that table and draws whatever she saw in her mind. The cousin pointed out the adjustable tabletop desk, which was slanted upwards. It was a drawing table where there was a large sketch pad, markers, pencils, and small tools, little erasers, protractors, and rulers. Above the table in the cased in rectangular windows was her book collection, a few Asian history books, Japanese novels, and the rest mostly manga series. Where are her paintings? I asked the cousin. The garage outside, it was renovated into her art studio. That's where she is most of the time. She works late at night. She works on her big pieces and everything for the Museum of Modern Art Show that she has coming up in the beginning of May. I listened to her cousin's careful descriptions and explanations. I knew she had not turned suddenly friendly or forgetful of what happened this weekend. I understood what she was attempting to do. She wanted to prove to me how important Akimi was and how ridiculous and unbelievable a distraction I was in her life.
Somehow, she thought, if she could convince me, maybe I would just do them all a favor and go away. I got the message. How could I miss it? How could I provide all of this luxury for Akimi anytime soon? It would take a lot of hard work, big clients, and big commissions. Akimi returned wearing a tight tee that gathered at her waistline and a pair of blue capris. Her hair was pulled back, fully displaying her bruises, which I felt was her rebellion and her intention. The sunglasses were off. She began pouring the steaming water into the cups. Her sound system was wired to fill the entire basement with music. I noticed. I flipped through her album collection. It was vast and varied. The oldest were her John Coltrane collection and Monk and Miles. She had Donny Hathaway, Al Green, Minnie Ripperton, Marvin Gaye, and Roberta Flack. She had Carlos Santana, The Sugar Hill Gang, Full Force, and Eric B. and Rakim. I plucked out an old Pat Benatar joint, a singer I only knew by this one single called Love is a Battlefield. I held it up to show her my choice. She smiled. I tried to make myself feel less tense and more comfortable. I played the record for us. Immediately, she started moving her body to the beat. It was hot to see that she had some rhythm. She didn't smile. She just stared into me, into my soul. The music soothed me. Her world aroused me. I danced with her. It was my cool dance, a lean here and there, my head moving some, my feet moving very little, but always on the beat. I wasn't the pop-blocking, bouncing, trembling kind of wild dancing man. I don't do no fucking headstands or backspins. The cousin looked bewildered. The music helped to hide or even remove the energy that she let off, which interfered with the perfect energy between Akimi and I. When the needle danced off and the song was through, the cousin seemed glad it was over. I sat now and watched Akimi pouring the tea. Even that was sexy to me, her hands holding the hot kettle, pouring the hot tea, and even the style of the teacups she selected, and the unusual sexy curve of her Asian spoons. She served all of us our tea. They sipped the only conversation happening through all of our eyes. My eyes were saying, I never meant for you to get hurt. Akimi's eyes were saying, I wish we were all alone. The cousin's eyes were saying, give him the gift so he can get out. You know, in Japan, everyone says Akimi is an artistic genius. They write about her talents in the newspapers and even the magazines. Everyone was proud when she left for America to do her art. Everyone is expecting her to do great things. Instead, she does what she wants to do. It would help us if you would just let her go. The cousin had finally said it. My face must have revealed my shame and my pain. In Sudan, shame and pride are both too heavy to carry. 
I was ashamed of letting Akimi get attacked. I was in pain over the thought of losing her. Akimi jumped in, sensing that something was wrong. She exchanged words with her cousin. She was still speaking softly, but she was pushing her words out forcefully. I could feel her anger. Both of them stood up. Akimi pulled her chair around to face me directly. She took her cousin's chair and faced it away from hers so that the cousin would have her back to Akimi and her face to me. I was just sitting there, checking out what they were doing and how they were doing it, wondering how I got myself all involved in this strange situation. What are you two doing? I asked. Akimi has some things to say to you. I will translate, the cousin said, exasperated. I felt my heart drop. I felt this was it. Her goodbye. Afterwards, it would be like everything unique and special between Akimi and I had never really occurred. Something that could never be forgotten. To be forgotten. Akimi sat down in her chair, so closely facing me that her legs were woven into mine. First my leg, then hers, then mine, then hers. The cousin was on the outside of the two of us. I could see her, but Akimi could not, on purpose. If anyone could have seen the three of us, tightly pressed together in such a small space in such a large apartment, they might have thought that we were involved in something bizarre and freaky. Akimi began to speak in her soft, musical, sultry voice. Her cousin began to translate, sucking the nectar out of Akimi's Japanese words and placing them into English for me. I was 12 years old when my mother died. She always told me to follow my heart and enjoy my life, to do as I please. She was Korean, a great writer, so great that my father fell in love with her words before ever seeing her face or even meeting her. The rest of my family is Japanese, but my mother is the one who gave me these eyes and the fire that burns within them. My father loved her a lot, so he holds on to me too tight. I wish he could see that I am as my mother was. Since he loved the freedom in her, he should love the freedom in me also. My family loves me and my art, yet they keep trying to put out my fire. I keep telling them, without this fire, there is no heart. Akimi turned around and shot a mean look at her cousin. If I could catch a snapshot of that mean look, the squinting of her big eyes to half their size and the way they slanted across her profile, she was too much. Akimi jumped up and left the room. Her cousin remained stewing but eased a little when she saw Akimi return with the gift that was to be given to me so I could get out. Akimi placed the gift, which was inside of a Bergdorf Goodman shopping bag, over on the tabletop. Then she walked back over to me and bowed down. 
her cousin lost her composure and began screaming at Akimi. Akimi screamed it back at her. I stood up as the second girl fight was about to jump off in my presence. She is not even supposed to be bowing down to you, her cousin yelled. The Japanese bow down as a, as a display of respect for their elders or when people are meeting each other for the first time. She is older. You are younger. So why is she bowing? I didn't have no answer for her. She and Akimi were back at it in their language. Akimi must have won because her cousin dropped back down into the chair. I believed that Akimi must have told her cousin something that she wanted to hear. Even if it was some small concession coming from Akimi, it was enough for the cousin to jump back into the translator's shoes. Akimi began speaking as she sat down. The cousin translated. Your mother is a goddess, Akimi said. The word goddess swirled around my head. Muslims don't use these terms to describe human traits, yet I understood that Akimi was in awe of Uma. So was I. I like your apartment. It is filled with so much love. No one is holding their love back. No one is disguising their love at your place. You three are showing it all the time. I wish I had a mother here to love me the way that your mother loves you and Naja, Akimi said. The cousin reached to the table and pulled the shopping bag down after she translated those last words about Uma. Akimi ignored the bag and continued speaking for her words to be translated. Thank you for taking me to the wedding. I have never seen more beauty and passion in a people. You never told me that the women from your country are so beautiful. At the wedding, I began to wonder why you even bothered about me. No one is like you, Akimi, I answered. Not even your own family, I added. The cousin translated my words to her. I hope. Akimi responded in Japanese to her cousin. Her cousin leaped up and her chair fell down on the floor. I stood and picked it up. Akimi jumped up. They went back and forth. By now, I understood that Akimi had said something else that her cousin did not agree with and refused to translate. And then, all of a sudden, the cousin spit out. Akimi said she wants you to make love to her. Now her eyes were red and tears were welling up in them. But I wish you wouldn't. I knew this was it. It was time for me to go. Look, calm down. I'll leave. Just ask Akimi one last thing. Ask her if she changed her mind about what she said yesterday in the ice cream store. What did she say to you? How could she say it? Her cousin asked me. It's nothing really, I lied. Just ask her for me. I was staring towards Akimi. Akimi's answer came back through her cousin. What I said to you yesterday will never change, Akimi said. I looked at Akimi overwhelmed by her intensity and loyalty. Then I even felt relieved by her forgiveness. I was realizing that I didn't like the way one small situation could be used to sum a man up 
and throw him in the garbage without consideration of his truth and his intention. In the Quran, a person's intention is so important. For the sake of her cousin, the only one who stood in between myself and Akimi's uncle, whose home I was standing in, I accepted the gift, picking up the shopping bag and said sayonara, walking across the floor to climb the stairs to leave out. Akimi called out something. I looked back. She was holding a knife in her hand. I dropped the bag and jumped to her. In one quick wave of her hand, she cut her hair off. She stood there holding a tight fist filled with about 12 inches of hair. Now, she only had a foot and a half of hair left on her head, shoulder length. She tied the bundle in her hand into a slip knot, as I had once done for her. She tossed the tied bundle of hair across the room and it fell right into the shopping bag. Word life, I didn't know what the fuck was going on. Was this some Asian tradition or just a woman thing? I don't know. I took the knife from her hand and tossed it to the floor. I pulled the kiwi into me and kissed her. She relaxed some and seemed relieved. Maybe she and I were both believing that the other would quit trying. In my embrace, her body felt soft and warm. She was using her tongue to convince me to stay. Her cousin stormed up the stairs. I picked up the shopping bag and followed her and left out before she rang the alarm, the phone call to her uncle, or the real one. Walking out through Queen's residences, the white sun lighting up the light blue sky, I saw a couple of signs lodged on lawns house for sale. While my family could not afford even this middle-class New York neighborhood, the for sale signs jarred my memory of the fact that Uma, Naja, and I were supposed to go looking at potential homes today. And I had promised to teach Naja some lessons also. It is family day. Then my mind drifted back to Akimi. After the scene in her basement apartment, I knew that realistically, I would need to have some suitable housing in place soon in case she ended up thrown out of the good graces of her family. Also because to take a wife, I should have shelter set up for her. I smiled as I thought of how Akimi was saying she liked our apartment in the hood. Maybe Fozzie was right. A woman in love will follow her husband even into a mud hut.